In February 2015, Roger L. Martin joined as a guest to talk about innovation, incentive, and inspiration that drives creative solutions to complexity. In 2017, Roger was named the world's number one management thinker by Thinkers 50, a biannual ranking of the most influential global business thinkers. This episode with Howard and Roger quickly cemented itself as one of our most listened to episodes in the eight years since we've been producing this show. We offer it again today because the lessons here are as relevant now as they were three years ago. And now, Roger L. Martin. Welcome to Navigating Change, the podcast from Tybal Inc. I'm Pete Wright, and I'm here as ever with the good Howard Tybal. Filled with snow. It's still snowing, Pete. Still snowing. It's still snowing. Everybody's home today. That's what you can count on. It's that nobody's out. It's actually pretty special. You do. It, you know you can get somebody at their house now. Well, that's good news. I've got some. Yeah. I've got some really mean fog that really impaired my driving this morning. Don't stop it. You always do this to me. Yeah. When you're... <laughs> I'm very excited about our show today, Howard. Oh my gosh, me too. If you are a regular listener to Navigating Change, you are likely familiar with the work of our guest this week. Professor Roger Martin is a former dean at the University of Toronto, and his contribution to the body of business knowledge through his writing and speaking is robust. His recent work has turned toward compensation, and in his article appearing in Harvard Business Review, The Rise and Likely Fall of the Talent Economy, he lays out his case for the disconnect of high salaries to performance in knowledge work, plus he's Canadian, and the highest compliment I have ever personally received was, I could pass for a Canadian. <laughs> Roger Martin, welcome to Navigating Change. That's a very nice introduction. Yes, uh, uh, I am from Canada, and it's, uh, it's not foggy here. It is cold. We don't have to show off too much for Howard. But. <laughs> <laughs> Howard, you heard an interview between Roger and Kara Miller on WGBH's uh, Innovation Hub. And after just a few minutes, these emails are flying that we have to ask Roger to join us on the show and that you may have a twist on this conversation that you wanted to explore uh, with him. Can you set the conversation for us? What was it about that interview that inspired you so much? Because you, 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 you ever in the car and you're listening to something on the radio and you and you almost have to pull over. That happened to me in this case, Roger. So I'm sitting there and I'm listening. To, you know, and it was interesting and it was engaging. And and at, at one point you said, in in tasks of the mind, monetary incentives don't improve performance. And and your interviewer, she was taken back by that. And you gave some examples and the nature of the work. And I'll speak about that in a few minutes. The nature of work that we're doing has both a innovation focus as well as a financial focus. And I was reflecting after that is, well, what is that actually, how do you translate that into the nature of generating new ideas and also holding people accountable to financial tasks? So could you first speak to, uh, for our listeners, this idea of in tasks of the mind, monetary incentives don't improve performance. I, I, I loved that the example you gave about the physical versus the mental tasks. Yes. Yeah, so the the general thought on this is is for a very long time there has been a belief in uh, monetary incentives driving uh, performance. Uh, it's been taken as an article of faith, but in the in the literature, the sort of the rigorous literature that measures this kind of kind of thing, there kind of has never been a study that shows uh, monetary financial uh, incentives being correlated with uh, with better 
uh, overall entity performance firm or organization or university or, or, or whatever. But more recently, now with the rise of behavioral economics, all the behavioral e- economist types, including brilliant Dan Ariely and actually one of his colleagues, Nina Mazar, uh, and I, and it's popularized by Dan Pink, one of my favorite uh, uh, writers and, and, and friends, um, uh, that it's, it's, it's now more crystal clear uh, that actually for tasks of the mind, monetary financial um, uh, incentives actually make you perform worse. So it's not even neutral. It's, it's, actually, it's actually worse. Um, and so if you are – but I, I think we believe in them in, our, in high levels of organizations. We believe in them because we are analogizing to the physical world. And it turns out that in the physical world, if it's sort of – you know, kind of moving rocks or, or uh, you know, clearing stumps or planting trees where it's work uh, of a physical nature, it turns out that uh, monetary incentives will cause you to perform better. It just turns out that in many, many parts of the modern world, uh, what's important is a, is a thinking task make a decision. Uh, what product are you going to launch? What's your, what's your advertising campaign? Those, are all, those aren't physical at all. They're tasks of the mind. And in those tasks, what the behavioral economists are, are, are finding really clear uh, evidence of is that the higher the financial incentive for performing the activity well versus, versus mediocrely versus poorly, the higher that comp- compensation incentive compensation, the worse uh, that the person uh, does. Uh, and that's, so, that's so fascinating. Yeah. And, so, and I think, and I, and I think it has, I mean, it, it has, it has to do with, with the one's kind of inability to uh, distance oneself from the work of the mind. And, yes. you know, Peter Drucker figured this out early on. You know, Peter Drucker, as I think we all know, is, was the, great genius and a, and a sort of a common sense genius. And he said in 1959, hey, you know, there's this uh, new kind of worker that's emerging in, in, uh, in the modern, then modern world of business. He's called, a, he or she's called a knowledge worker. And the most important uh, uh, muscle they use is not their, their muscles in their arms or legs or backs. It's the muscle they use between their ears. Yes. And that knowledge worker um, unlike the physical worker, the physical worker has an easier time, uh, sort of, you know, moving rocks all day or, or, you know, pouring concrete all day and coming, uh, to the end of the day, getting home and saying to himself or herself, um, that was my job. I poured concrete today. The, and so the job is dissociated from me. That's not me. I am not a concrete pourer. I poured concrete today. If instead you're a brand manager or a professor and you come home at the end of the day, you are your work. Nice. Uh, and that's what Peter Drucker said. You can't dissociate yourself from your, your work. You are your work. Um, and I think that tight, tight, tight connection, I think, makes it different. Sorry. No, that's all right. I was just going to celebrate this sort of a love letter to Peter Drucker. Don't, don't worry, Peter. We won't understand that for 60 years. But uh, <laughs> That's right. I mean, I mean that, that, that is his legacy. Yes, yeah. That's I'm a Peter sad Drucker. legacy. I'm Peter Drucker, and here's, what, here's the way the world works. And everybody says, you're nuts. Yeah. And, then 20, <laughs> yes. and, then, then, and then 25 years later, they say, 
boy, he kind of had a point there. Yeah, huh? that's right. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> a bit he did delayed. it over and over. <laughs> so, yeah, so delayed. What, what, what struck me about this was the example that you gave, uh, you know, the moving rocks, they'll do more to make more money. If I give a mental problem to, uh, to solve and there's a monetary incentive, the money is a disincentive. And, and the idea that uh, it actually, as you used and I've heard you speak about, it freaks people out. And the connection for me is to the certain kind of project that I've been leading that I wanted to engage you in this conversation around is that we do these broad idea generation exercises. So we'll take... Uh, 10 teams across every kind of division at a university system, 100 to 200 people will be participating and we'll give them a task to go out and look for ideas to generate efficiency and effectiveness, big ideas, low-hanging fruit. But instead of senior leadership saying, we have all the solutions, it's a top-down and bottom-up approach. And since 2008, we've been doing more and more of these kinds of projects where uh, leaders understand that we need to engage the workforce as being part of the solutions versus just sort of waiting for us to tell them what to do. And we've done these in two ways. In in some cases, the leaders say, we do have financial mandates and targets. We're going to give them to them. And in other cases, they say, this is purely an idea generation exercise. We want you to come with as much as possible. Be creative. Step outside the box. And I can tell you what struck me about in tasks of the mind, that it's a disincentive, is that when we've given these financial targets and mandates, it has made the idea generation piece of this much more difficult to navigate. And it's a bit of a dilemma because if we don't give financial targets as part of the broader goals, look for ideas, but it needs to have some kind of revenue or cost savings benefit. If we don't give this, the risk is, and I've seen this too, is that teams come up with wonderful ideas that don't move the needle on the financial side. So it's a kind of dilemma that there isn't an answer for, but I got to tell you, every time I go into this, uh, I, I ask myself, in what way do I guide senior leadership? in this conversation about the financial piece of these projects? People do need goals. So then the, the, uh, if you just, if you tell people, go out and do your best, um, I, I think they can often, that, that in and of itself can be, can be debilitating or even demoralizing because they don't know what it means. So they need to have meaning. Um, uh, but I, I do think the more you make the meeting, the meaning of, of people's, of people's work, their, their, uh, their, uh, uh, kind of a pure abstract kind of financial goal. Cause financial things are kind of an abstraction, right? They're just ways we measure, measure things. They're not the That's thing. Right. That's they're, right. They're, they're the measurement. The measurement is not the idea, is not the innovation. The, the measure, right. the money is the outcome of the, the, uh, the innovation coming to fruition. I think that's part that's of the problem, right. too, is that the other, yeah. emotionally, as individuals, we come back to see money, particularly in this context, as stakes. Like there is yeah. something at stake, which I think, again, becomes a lead balloon on creativity. That's yeah, right. I think, I think that's right. So if, if it were me doing, doing it, I, the things I would focus on, on making sure that that I aimed people at the meaning, you know, what would this, what, what is this effort 
uh, going to mean for us if we do it well. Correct. Right. It's going to mean a it's going to be a stronger university. It's going to mean more kind of room to invest in the kind of things we want to invest in. What whatever it's it's you, it's you make the meaning less of uh, less about an uh, uh, abstraction called money um, and and more about the 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 task and why it's a why it's a, it should be a, a a meaningful task because I think when you're using your mind it's you you can't dissociate yourself from it and if you come home at night and say I engaged in an exercise today to chop 12% out of the cost structure of the university and that's going to mean firing a bunch of people and whatever you don't feel that's awesome that's me uh, but if instead you come home saying we were engaged in a very important task today of making sure that the university is solvent and uh, and able to able to fulfill its its uh, uh, educational and research uh, mandate. That that you can say to yourself, your mind says to yourself, well, that's a good thing. That is me. That's who I am. I'm somebody who's a steward for the university, making sure the university is strong and and the like. At Here's a certain I, point, they're yeah, going to ask you. At a certain point, they're going to ask you the question. Yeah, but kind of, how will we know when we're done? Mm-hmm. And that's where, you, and that's where you do need some kind of measurement. So I think it falls apart if you can't answer the question. How, like, sort of, how will we know when we're we're done? How will we know we've done a good job at at this? And I think if, right. at that point you say, well, we'll know we've done a good job if if we if we achieve this kind of financial uh, financial target without without damaging the culture, without being exactly. arbitrary, without right. whatever, you've, you've helped them create a measurement system that is, that is more rather than less tied to the overall meaning of the exercise. So that, that's the sort of thing I'd, I'd pay attention to. I love that. And, and I'll tell you, the other thing that speaks to for me is this whole area of magic expectations. Because when people come into these projects, they are very appreciative. When a, so we put these cross-functional teams together of faculty, in some cases students and administrators, looking at whether it's uh, facilities or how do we look at academic programs differently or how do we look at student affairs and how do we look at retention? All of those different areas, you could say, let's just put the division that's responsible for it in charge. But instead, what we've been doing is we've been saying the inheritors of some of these changes are part of it. It's like creating this big this this big brain uh, so that you're getting a the kind of broad understanding of the implications of moving. And it's, it's both a powerful exercise and I can tell you what I, where I love about what you're saying is that more and more, I think, institutions in the most recent project we're doing now, that's precisely what they're, we're doing is we're saying, let's tie this back to what success looks like from a mission standpoint. And, and that is you have contributed to moving the institution, not just towards greater financial solvency, but you have moved us consistent with where we want to be in our mission. You pointed out a, a, to me a brilliant observation about how do you know you're done? How do we know we have successfully and they can feel good about our contribution? And in this case, the way we're doing this is we are in a sense, the, the work of all these teams is, is being turned over to a body whose job is to evaluate it, prioritize, and then begin to assign these financial metrics. And I think if you can effectively show people how their work gets turned over to another group that's going to take that to the next step, 
then I think they can walk away feeling like they were given a task that they that they could be successful at. So that yeah. I, I love where you're going with that, uh, and I think that's the direction to go. The, what I found though is some schools. Uh, or some leaders, whether it's a president or the provost, uh, they look at these more, more the president, they're looking at these or the trustees and they're saying, we're not going to take this on unless we, we're not going to do this in this kind of broad way unless we can have some certainty that it's going to have the financial benefit. And, you know, the alternative of 3% cuts across the board, that is the old way of thinking. And more and more schools are recognizing that doesn't cut it uh, yeah. but i and, also and it's need- partially because it has is if i can interrupt it is it's it's partially because it's devoid of meaning right correct three percent across the board cut well why are we saying that like every dollar we're spending uh, could be spent three percent better yeah. Uh, yeah or is it some areas were we're wasting money some areas were being inefficient or not everybody knows that Every dollar isn't being spent the, the same way. They know from their own personal experience. And so that takes the meaning out of it. It's we're engaging in this stupid exercise that is being forced on us, uh, you know, kind of by somebody who doesn't really care and have stewardship over the over this inst- institution. That's what people will will say. And they'll be half right and half wrong. They have stewardship. That's in the right. Sense that unless we get three percent out, we're going to be we're going to be in deficit. And then the state will come down hard on us or our or our, our Senate will will uh, or whatever. But but if it's if it's more meaning laden, OK, here's the task. The task is we've got to we've got to together figure out a way to to deliver all the great things we're delivering and manage to get to get three uh, percent out, and we need to make this a great university, uh, and and this hopefully will strengthen us and make us a, a greater university so that we can achieve our our uh, our goals. This and is if a, the group, and if the group if the group gets together and does that, and you had two choices of what to do at the at the end, uh, choice number one is pay them all. A five thousand dollar bonus for 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 being part of the group that that uh, that got three percent, or throw a celebration where the whole group celebrates and somebody up at the uh, up at the front stands up and says and says you were the guys and gals, you guys did it. We had this challenge. It was tough. You guys did it, and you know the thing that makes me proud? You did it in a way that's consistent with all of our values and what we're trying to accomplish at a a university. I will always remember that it is you guys and gals. You did it. Thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. They will be be way happier. What? I love that. Second than the first. I've heard you tell this story. You've told this story before uh, uh, about uh, on the academic side how you, as I, I believe, as a dean, were inspiring your your uh, your faculty, and yeah. and I was so I was blown away by your focus on on happiness and yeah. and how yeah. and how. It, it was about sort of really getting in there and appealing to the relationship. Uh, yeah. And in that way, you were getting so much more out of them than sort of demanding the, the sort of this, this academic, we need this from you. That's a really interesting yeah. point because, you know, and I, I'll say this as a faculty member, uh, many faculty don't even know they want to be inspired in this way. 
they don't even know they want to be led. They just kind of go throughout their their day, and it's kind of a surprise or a shock when they when they get they experience yeah. this sort of caretaking. But it gets to a point that you uh, made, Roger, about this idea of treating your knowledge workers as volunteers, and I wonder if that doesn't get to some of this issue of inspiration and ownership or or, or ascribing meaning to the work that we're doing. I, I, could you talk a little bit yeah. about what you mean by that? And maybe you don't sure. have to bring up Tom Brady in particular, but <laughs> you, know, you can bring him up no. in a positive way as long as he brings up that, especially this week. I only want I want I your lo- nothing. I love I love Tom Brady. I love there we Tom go. For Sixteen years. So, um, right. but and 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 I I will I will do it by telling a, a slightly different story than I think I than I think you uh, you heard uh, Howard that's even more specific to this. So when I first became a dean of the of the Rodman School, we we had uh, we had terrible terrible economics. Uh, you know, we did have a, de- a deficit and we weren't very good and and the like. Actually, the Financial Times ratings just came out yesterday, and we're now we wouldn't have been in the top 100 in in research ranking, uh, and and we literally just came out as fourth on the planet. Harvard, Wharton, Stern, and us tied with Chicago. Wow. As, Fantastic. As, as Congratulations. Man, it felt, it felt good. But anyway, early on, uh, we had kind of a financial challenge uh, uh, because we didn't have the money and we weren't world-class and we had to build that and, and, and the like. And one of my very few, really at that point, world-class professors came in to see me uh, to sort of say, I'm underpaid and essentially I need a 25% uh, salary increase, or I'm going to start looking for a job, uh, you know, down south. Uh, and he could have gotten one. He was he not, you know, uh, he was he was out, outstanding um, yeah, uh, scholar. And so I said, I said to him, I said to him, here's the scoop. I am, I'm game, I'm game to do that, right? Uh, but it's a choice that you'll be making. So I'm going to have professors who are part of the solution and professors who are part of the problem. The problem is we don't have enough money and it's going to take us a while to get enough money to pay all of you guys uh, uh, world-class salaries. Uh, I've got a plan for that. It's going to take the better part of of, uh, of five years to completely uh, uh, conclude it in in those five years. I'm going to need a bunch of professors who are excellent and could get paid more to hang in there with me, believe in the place, and they'll get taken care of, but it'll take, it'll take uh, five years. And the ones that say, yep, that's fine. I'll wait. I'll wait for the economics to take, to take shape, and, uh, um, uh, and, and that's fine. I'm going to consider them the part of the solution group. I'll always look at them whenever I see them. Whenever I'm talking to them, I'll say, ah, he or she was part of the solution. Uh, uh, and then this other group is going to be demanding and ask right now for, for theirs. And it's going to make the financial job harder. We'll have to ration elsewhere. And um, I'll give them the money because I mean, we, need to, we, we need to retain them. But they will forever be in the part of the problem uh, category. Uh, and so you have a choice. I can either and give you're, you the, you're being explicit about this. You're telling yep. this to them. I, this is word for word. This is I love word it. for word, yep. and, and I say I can either raise your salary seventy-five thousand dollars now, uh, but you will actually, I'm sorry, forever be in my part of the problem category, <laughs> or I won't give you the seventy-five thousand. I'll promise as soon as I can give you the seventy-five thousand, I will give it to you, and you will be in the part of the solution uh, group, and and it's it's fine. You'll be fine fine either way. The only I'm not going to tell people uh, about it. 
uh, the only thing is that I will know which group you're in. And so will you. Yeah, that's going to be in my head. So you, you, you go away and choose. And, um, and he, he uh, came back to me the next day and say, uh, solution. So let me ask, this is unbelievable. So, so why do you think other leaders, people that sort of have the charge to motivate and inspire others, why do you think more people don't take that on? Is it that they never thought of it that way? What's the mindset that you think you brought to this? Because I don't think that, I don't think that kind of choice is uh, put to individuals in the way that you did so clearly, so uh, in such a human way that you appeal to sort of the the best side of them. Why don't more of us do that? Well, I, I think the number one reason is is this the the widespread fallacy, right? That uh, that that people are motivated uh, by money. Uh, they're not. Um, it's not as though it doesn't matter at all, but it matters. The context of the money matters so much. So in this case, I, I you know, you can argue that I nefariously, you know, kind of burned $75,000 in front of this guy's eyes, right? By making it, by, by making it in, in his own mind, a right. poison chalice. Uh, right, of, of exactly. $75,000. Uh, uh, $1, and I didn't do it in a manipulative way. I, did, no. I just said, this, this is the way it is. Um, and they do it all the time. I mean, at risk of, of going to more stories, like the other problem we had was we had no uh, junior faculty members because the market, we could keep some of our old faculty members that were really good because they lived in Toronto and their families were here and they, they, were, they were sticky. But in the hiring new faculty market, uh, that's a very there's a very liquid market. Everybody's leaving their university where they are already, uh, and uh, and so they uh, uh, they'll go to the highest bidder. And salaries are a signal of of how good a university it is. And so I I, I went to all my senior faculty. I brought them together in a room and said, "Here we got the problem. We have no junior faculty members, and junior faculty members are laughing at the salaries that we're offering them them now. We have two choices. One I've got this plan to get us in, you know, in financial order, and I can systematically give you guys the money first so that we get your salaries up to world, world-class rates, which means about doubling your, your salary over, over, you know, over, over that uh, period. Uh, but then we won't be able to hire any juniors. Um, or uh, I can start paying juniors world-class salaries while your salaries stay where they are so that we'll be paying newly minted assistant professors who just finished an, uh, uh, a PhD, we'll be paying them more than you, a full chaired professor who's been here serving us for, for 20 years. Um, so it's up to you guys and gals. You, you, you decide which, which, uh, which you want, and I will, I will respect it. Uh, you, you deserve the money, uh, but we can't have you get the money and also hire juniors. So just yeah. you tell me, guess do what? what you, do you know what you're doing? They came, they came back a week later. Yeah, they came it. back a week later and said, hire yeah. the juniors. 
You uh, know what you're doing? Fantastic juniors. So here's what's so to me as I listen to you because I picture myself being one of those faculty members listening to you tell the story is that what you effectively do in both of those cases is you're giving them choice. And I yep. and I think that by doing that in 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 a way that respects them, that that when people have choice, it, I mean, it's so much easier to complain that management is not giving us what we need. You put choice in front. It's I think what you're what you're pointing to is that people will do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And since the majority will do the right thing, I'm sure there were people in the room that were hoping to raise their hand and say, I'll take the money. But because the majority wants sort of that pull to do the right thing, it sort of quells people being more selfish and yeah. people become more selfless. Uh, that's what I think you're appealing to that's so powerful. And that's a that's a certain then, kind of go ahead. And then you got to reinforce it. So this story yeah. I've told I've told probably twenty times in various in various audiences. When audiences will will like I'll be making some presentation and they'll be they'll there'll be some snarky question about you know kind of high paid uh, entitled academics or whatever. And I say, well, you know that's one way to look at it. But let me tell you a story, and that'll inevitably get back to this group right when I tell them that that story, and they'll say. I was one of those. I, yes. was, I was in the room when Roger asked us that. I'm one of the people that he's now bragging on, you know, seven years later, 10 years, 10 years later. It is reinforcing something that is a value. So I'm Beautiful. not saying that compensation isn't a value. Monetary compensation isn't. Social compensation is. That's why I said, don't give him 5,000 bucks. Throw a party saying, you people and I, we did this together and I couldn't have possibly done it without you. You're awesome. What a group. You're fantastic. That is, that is the kind of compensation that does move the needle, I think. Whereas monetary compensation says that the person who's doing a thinking task says, let me get this straight. The only way I think hard is if they give me more money. What does that make me? Right. Yeah. You know, sort of an intellectual it, horror, it, basically. Right. 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 That's right. right. That's right. Uh, whereas, That's right. whereas, whereas, if if all of my colleagues together with me, we all say, if we can do this together, we can make this university solvent and and you know and financially strong and and able to do its job. What does that make you feel? An well, awesome team that, member. That an I awesome think, team member. I, I think that you know you, you the way you phrased it when talking to your faculty member that you sort of burned seventy five thousand dollars in front of him. I that's not the way it hit me at all. And I think this story really reinforces the value, frankly, as a leader, of bleeding for your peers a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that there is a case to be made for, as you say, that social compensation, just letting them be a part of and ascribe their own meaning by by watching you feel that pain for them, yes. whatever the yes. case may be. No, I think that's true. That's true. And, and also, I think a leader's job in this in this case is 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 uh, is very much helping draw the meaning out of it, because sometimes what is and is not meaning is kind of exactly. abstract and hard to figure out. And and what you do is you say, right. here's here's how I'm saying uh, meaning c- can be construed. In this case, it's the cadre of people who are the solution and the cadre of people who are the problem. That's how we're going to now categorize meaning or i'm gonna i'm i'm telling you that that's the way 
I will categorize meaning. Right, because in the absence of you doing that, in the absence of you defining meaning, people will all will all have their own interpretation. And what you effectively did is you've you've set a context of what meaning actually means to you. And ultimately they have a choice to step into that framing. And if you don't if you don't explicitly define it, then people are left with their own interpretation. That's right. I, I, and, and in some sense, in some sense, in this case, I was competing uh, on, on meaning. He had another form of meaning at the time, mm-hmm. right? He had a job offer, I think it was from USC, uh, for the, the, the extra 25 or 30% uh, higher. And so meaning for him was, they're the real deal, and they're paying me what I'm worth. This is, you know, you're not. Uh, so you're either the cheapo or you're the unfair place or whatever. So his meaning was constructed in a certain way. I, I constructed another way that he could he could take meaning out of the uh, the situation. We'll get there. In fact, we're a hell of a lot uh, right. farther uh, farther ahead now. Of course, his... we'll get we'll get there. Um, but uh, but it's going to take a little bit of time. And are you part of the solution or the problem? That was a competing. A vision of, of meaning, and fortunately for him, uh, it was compelling, uh, c- uh, compelling enough for him to trade from his previous conception of the meaning of the situation to a new conception of meaning. Well, I think that's so interesting because for him, at least as I hear you tell that story, his social compensation was derived by the bidding war that he was hoping to achieve, right? To have people tell him how valuable he is as translated through money. Uh, I think that's fascinating. Howard. And I was telling him he was was valuable by being a key part of the solution. Absolutely. You know, and, and I can imagine, and tell me if this is true for you, Roger, that even repeating telling the story uh, in the way that you do in different forums allows you to keep top of mind that this way of being works, mm-hmm. you know, the, in the sense that you are reinforcing. I mean, just listen, you tell the story, you know, as if it was yesterday. I mean, that's how yeah, no, that's no. how real it is for you. And whether it was five years ago or two years ago, uh, I think that 16, 16 years ago. <laughs> yeah. But but again, I would imagine that this kind of you talk about behavioral economics or or training ourselves to think a certain way. This is a reinforced practice that that just listening to you tell it. I I I can only imagine those of us who are listening to this podcast and listening to you have to be asking themselves, how am I motivating others? And I think you've taken that conversation to to a deeper level than. Most of us often get to, and and I think you also have a great facility for for communicating effectively, and also showing uh, a genuine concern for others, which is at the heart of what I what I think you're talking about. There's so much yeah. more for us to talk about, you know, which and 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 I think that we're gonna hopefully be able to have you back on the show. You know, another area where I absolutely would love to get into you with is. The whole relationship between uh, the academic leadership and the administrative leadership—that's that's a whole other oh. topic. But uh, let's let's make yeah, sure that call, we come back and do up. this again. Call me up I, that, on that on that one. I, I'd, I'd be a. I'd be delighted to come back. Uh, and B, I just think it's a having. You see, so I'm just one of these quasi academics, right? I've been an academic now for 16 years, and I was a business guy before. Um, and, uh, and I think the sub, that subject couldn't be more important. Uh, you know, institutions of higher education are becoming more and more and more important in the, in the economy. And that, 
that there are schisms between those two worlds that aren't in uh, serving the academy well. So uh, totally uh, you, you call, I'll come back on. Oh, yeah. what a wonderful thing. Roger Martin, thank you so much for joining us today on Navigating Change. Where would you like people to find you? Oh, the, the easiest thing to, to do is to go to my uh, website. It's uh, just www.rogerl. My middle name is Lloyd, so rogerlmartin.com. Um, and on this whole incentives and compensation, there's just a tab that, that, that has all my work on incentives and compensation. And, and if, if people were intrigued by what I had to uh, say today, there's a, there's a, a whole bunch of stuff uh, there. So uh, rogerlmartin.com. Absolutely. And intrigued, entirely intrigued. We will put the link in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much for your time and attention today, Roger Martin. Well, Howard, Pete, it was, uh, it was great. Thanks, thanks a lot to you guys. Howard, as ever, it's a treat. Yeah, this was this was this was wonderful, and I think it it broadens a view for our listeners uh, around stepping back and, and looking at this thing that I think you and I have been talking about for years now, which is how do we build effective not just leaders but teams? How do we get people to step into a place of of moving an organization forward? Uh, and appealing to the the best sides of ourselves while having to get done some very important work, especially in higher ed today, because there, there is so much change going on. So I think this has added so much to a conversation that we've been having for years. Absolutely. Uh, to find out more about the show and hear more of that conversation, head over to tybalink.com. You can subscribe to the show for free in iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Uh, reach out to us on Twitter at Howard Tybel or at Pete Wright. On behalf of the good Roger Martin and Howard Teibel, I'm Pete Wright, and we'll catch you next week on Navigating Change, the podcast from Teibel, Inc.